Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Hello, hello. And welcome. Hey there. Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon Make Matriarchy Great Again. That was the dulcet and powerful tones of Dawn Sam Alden. And the potent and mellifluous sound of Sean Marlon Newcomb. Yay, let's get uh, some hearing. <laughs> All right, so you know, the listeners won't know, but we've been uh, dancing around getting this episode started because we're going to take a big, well, we'll take a little bite out of a big chunk. Yes, yes. This is the beginning of a new series mm -hmm. where we're talking about how um, misogyny in ancient Greece and Rome has been drawn upon and used to perpetuate um, the ideas of women as, as uh, lesser beings up until today, basically. I mean, yeah. these are thoughts no, that are still wasn't. very much present in our culture yeah yeah it, it took me an hour to get going because i just feel like this is one of those topics which first of all the academic community will sharpen its knives mm -hmm. uh, those folks and it will sharpen their knives uh ready to cut us down from a scholarly standpoint there'll be people who from a cultural standpoint will say this is a bunch of bunk we're not influenced by stuff from 2500 years ago which for me sounds insane since we live in a country that was influenced by a civilization from 2,500 years ago in terms of its many of its systems and structures. Oh, yeah. In yeah. terms of our government, our architecture, our aesthetic. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And our, and our culture still has its influences from our the mythology to the way things are written to our formats of theater and art and drama. So we expect a little bit of blowback, but that's what we're here for. So... <laughs> That is correct. That so, is correct. So then why don't we jump right in. So Dawn, I'm just going to take our little uh, opening format that we have often called What is the Big Idea? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So resolve. The misogyny of Aristotle and the Greeks has destructively influenced Western thought for 2,500 years. Is that bold enough? I think that's bold enough. Okay. Yeah. I, I I would boil that down to Aristotle was a dick. Let's see if I can. <laughs> Thank you. I was Thank trying you. to find proper applause for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's. Let's, I'll just very quickly say again, we're going to look at this as soberly as we can. We're going to call it a scholarly dissertation. I'm not going to say that. I will say that we are, you know, being honest brokers with this. And so when Dawn says that, let me give you an idea of why Dawn Sam Alden would say such a thing about such a great figure in history. Why on earth would she impugn this man? All right. Well, here's a quote from Aristotle that I think uh, the kids at home might be interested in. Woman is, as it were, an infertile male. The female, in fact, is female out of inability of a sort 
It lacks the power to concoct semen out of the final state of its nourishment because of the coldness of its nature. And then let's top it off with this one. Just as it is sometimes happens that deformed offspring are produced by deformed parents, and sometimes not, so the offspring produced by a female are sometimes female, sometimes not, but male. The reason is that the female is, as it were, a deformed male, and the menstrual discharge is semen, though in an impure condition. Here's a couple quick bon mots. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. And also, the courage of a man lies in commanding. A woman's lies in obeying. I have a feeling that wouldn't go over really well at the Women's March a couple of years ago. <laughs> I want to try it out. You know, some of the speakers go up and... Uh, yeah. So uh, since we're launching this whole series, let's just take a quick moment um, to just um, review a couple, a couple sort of parentheses around. Mm -hmm. So when we say misogyny in ancient Greece and Rome, ancient Greece for this section, we're going to um, consider from the 8th century BCE to the accepted sort of end of Greece was the sacking of uh, Greece by Rome in 146 BCE. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. that period of about 650 years. Yeah, it's usually we go, we'll go through from that sort of early classical age through to past where um, yeah. Alexander yeah, the there were three established the... Yeah, yeah ancient Greece is usually... Um, sort of divided into three major periods. The Archaic period, which was the 8th century BCE through the 6th, six, excuse me, 800 BCE through 600 BCE. Mm -hmm. The Classical period was considered, you know, 600 BCE through 400 BCE. And then the Hellenistic and Greco-Roman period was... 400 BCE through this, through 150, excuse me, good Lord, 146 BCE. Um, Aristotle um, was, uh, lived from 384 BCE to 322 BCE. So he was firmly in that Hellenistic period. He gives for, to give some context for the listener. So there's a legacy. Well, we'll go into Aristotle a little bit, but he gives He's a tutor to Alexander the Great, and Alexander gives rise to what we call the Hellenistic period because Alexander, through his uh, warfare and conquest, spreads Greek culture to different parts of the world, and those cultures mix, they synthesize, and you get this Hellenistic culture, which is a mixture of Greek philosophies and theories with local cultures, sensibilities. You particularly see it in Egypt and places like that. Um, let's talk about then, let's give the, let's give the setting for the ancient world and for Aristotle. Let's start with the ancient world, um, just ancient Greece, let's say in this case, and again, trying to keep our view narrow. Mm -hmm. So our main concern is talking about the role of women in this world. What kind of a culture was it? 
we're only going to say, we're just going to talk a little bit about those cultures. And again, the idea of ancient Greece, as scholars will rightly point out, is ancient Greece is really a, is made up of a bunch of different and distinct ancient city-states. Yes. So Athens yes. and Sparta and Thebes and all the like. Often we're talking about Athens because that's where we have most of the literature that we know of is yes. Athenian or Athenians writing about other people like the Spartans. Other so, city-states, exactly, other like city the states. Spartans or um, in on politics, which we're going to uh, you know, talk about a lot and quote from, um, he talks about, uh, he quite often, um, he quite often refers to, um, the Lacedemians and, um, he even refers to the government of the Cretans. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, he talks about, um, other city states and things that happen there. Um, He's, he's definitely looking into giving a, a comparison when we start to talk about Aristotle, and again, in this episode, we're just going to set the found set the foundation. We're going right. to give the setting for how we're going to start exploring it. We definitely want to hear uh, feedback for what you want to hear about it, uh, the listener, and where we take the topic. The, the ancient world, so talking about the city-states, principally we talk about two when we look back to the classical era. We talk about Athens and Sparta. Yeah. And what is interesting is that when you talk about the role of women in those cultures, now we're talking about in ancient Greece, there's no dispute. These are patriarchal cultures by and large. Mm -hmm. But we have, in the case of Athens and Sparta, a definite difference in the way women um, were treated in the culture, though... In the end, and I think a lot of scholars overemphasize the sort of quote-unquote freedoms that Spartan women have had, the idea was that in both cases, women did not have political authority in either state. But their cultural differences, Athenian women were much more repressed than Spartan women. Yes, yes. And that was because primarily their men were 100% involved in warfare, in military life. The and Spartans. The Spartans, exactly. So it's not necessarily because the Spartans had some sort of enlightened view of how women were, you know, were, were better representations of half of the human race. It was just because the women by default had to take care of so much more of the society because the men were spending 100% of their time on military life and training. And also, so, it's also important too to note that part of that military focus is also another reason why there was a, some greater autonomy for women because from the standpoint of the Spartans, the idea was, you want to have good, strong warrior babies. You want yes. good, strong babies from good, strong mothers. And they yes. wanted them to be thinking eugenically healthy in all ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't so much that, you know, they, they were enlightened. As I said, they were enlightened men, 
but rather that the structure of their society being so wholly focused on men as the perfect soldiers just sort of left to the women a lot of things that otherwise men would have overseen and did so in Athens, the city-state of Athens. I think it's, it's always interesting to me when we talk about, we look at culture and gender, particularly in the West, whether ancient world or modern world, there's a tendency for us to look at whenever there's female power or empowerment, that somehow what did men give them? It's it's never looked at that these women are driving, fighting, having their own, you know, self-autonomy, but it's like, well, you know, it's like you're saying, it's like this idea that, well, I guess, does it mean that the Spartan men were enlightened and look what they did for their ladies? It's, it's got nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, It's more that they were distracted. They were distracted. Whereas the Athenians fun love and free spirits oh, that they were they were oh. super so here's um so here's a quick quote from aristotle mm-hmm. uh, in whatever city then the women are not under good regulations we must look upon one half of it as not under the restraint of law as it there happened for the legislator desiring to make his whole city a collection of warriors with respect to the men he most evidently accomplished his design. But in the meantime, the women were quite neglected, for they live without restraint in every improper indulgence and luxury. So that in such state, riches will necessary, necessarily be in general esteem, particularly if the men are governed by their wives, which has been the case with many a brave and warlike people. So. He's basically saying, you know, if you leave women alone and don't put them under a lot of regulation, don't be surprised if your society goes to shit. It's just astonishing about how much that has influenced thinking down to the present day, which is the reason for this particular episode of the podcast. Let's let's set the context, too, for people for what Aristotle's particular world was like, because as an Athenian... Those kinds of rights, you know, when in comparison, the rights of the Spartan women, again, they are not involved in the politics of their nation. They do not determine the laws. They do not vote. Yes. At the end of the day. They are not lawyers. Yes. Exactly. At the end of the day, if you're not, it's like I I would always get annoyed when I'd hear the different sort of scholars talking on women's issues saying, well, you know, the women did the weaving or whatever. It's like, you can say whatever you want about that, but if they're not weaving laws, they don't have much power. And that's yeah. just the fact. And yeah. so for the Athenians, I mean, it was insane. So for the smart women, of course, they wanted smart, healthy, strong men is really what they were interested in. So they mm-hmm. figured you needed smart, healthy, strong women. And they were known as being physically fit, physically beautiful uh, smart. Um, they were educated. Mm-hmm. Um, they were allowed to oversee. Uh, this is part of the reason they needed that education. They oversee saw finances and domestic life, the home, the property, as the men were off fighting. Mm-hmm. So you have that. Whereas in Athens, that none of that was necessary for them. The idea was lock them up in the house, transfer them from father to husband, young and keep them away 
as much as you can, except for them to go out to festivals or to go out to religious uh, things or to fetch water because heaven knows they need to do that. So, well, that was part of, yeah, the care of the home. Exactly. They didn't have, yeah, they didn't have internal running water. So anything that needed to be done in the home, you know, uh, flushing the waste out of the home, cooking, washing, things like that, you needed water for it. And yeah. if you were, if you were poor enough that you didn't have slaves that you could send to the wells, then you would have to send your women folk there. And there is actually in the art and the sort of um, stories of, of Athens, surprising, unsurprisingly, a lot of trysts take place at the wells because it was one of the few places where women were sometimes uh, not under strict guard. It's, it's really important. I want the listeners to really get this. One of the points of this broadcast is that when we show the ancient world, you see it in movies like Troy and on our other channel, The Parallax, we're doing reviews of the ancient world at the movies. It's, I, I talk about Hollywood the way Hollywood portrays stuff because it is a propaganda machine in many ways. It's fun. I love entertainment. I'm not going in some crazy meta, you know, postmodernist view of it. I'm just saying the simple fact of the matter is most people get their sense of what the ancient world was like in history or any period was like from movies. Right. So to be aware that Athenian women were pretty much under, under watch most of their days, most of their lives is something to really just let sink in. That they had no autonomy, none really beyond a few spheres like you're talking about when they yeah. could get out to the well or if there was a women's, uh, some rites or religious festival, things of that sort. Yes, but, yeah. There's quite a bit of information about um, the religious festivals mm -hmm. um, because especially in, in Athens, they served as community builders. You know, once a month, they had these uh, festivals where the men would all go to the symposia and they would supposedly celebrate the particular religious festival of the day. But it served just as much as a, as a way of, you know, binding community together, a function that religion has served throughout, you know, throughout the history of, of the world. It's a, it's a cultural, it provides a cultural stickiness for people. It gives them reasons to come together and reasons to form um, community. So women were, because it was in service of, of the gods, there were uh, monthly festivals where women could gather with other women. And within the, the, the structure of those festivals, um, which were private and women only, uh, they weren't, you know, they weren't individually guarded. But again, it was a, a certain allowance that they were given by the male-dominated society. And it wasn't like they could choose to get together at any time or any given day. Those were spaces that were structured for them by the patriarchal society. And this is in Athens, again, as a reminder. One of the things, again, with that too, is let's, again, set that setting. So they're under watch all the time in Athens, women. They are 
passed, they're considered the guardian, the, the guardianship, under guardianship, really property of their father or male, uh, eldest male in their household. Then they're at about 14, 13, 14, married off to a much older man, and they are now under his guardianship. They are not allowed to engage in economic transactions. There's some discussion about how poor people uh, would have had to have had women working. Okay, but by and large, the rule is they're not supposed to be involved in economics. They're not supposed to be spending. They're not supposed to have money. They don't have any legal rights. They don't represent themselves in legal proceedings. Where I mean, we're and they're often just veiled. They're covered up and veiled. And yes, and they, yeah, yeah. They they weren't supposed to be seen um, in public. So you had to, you know, similar to sort of um, some Islamic extremist societies today. Mm. Though you weren't you weren't supposed to be able to to glimpse their actual flesh. So that's the setting of Aristotle's world, okay? And uh, there is there are things they talk about approvingly about women who were even embarrassed to be in the presence of their male relatives. Like that was the ideal, you know, mm-hmm. the woman who didn't want to be seen. The woman who I, we talked about this on a podcast before. Remember the woman who was praised uh, in a, a speech in the public forum for not even being remembered that her. Yes that her great achievement would be not even being remembered. Yes, that the, the ultimate virtue of a woman is to be invisible. To be invisible. So so why are we doing this podcast? It's for that reason. We talk about, one, to give, um, to, to bring to life, to bring the vision of these women around, but also to show, the, to, to convey to the listener just exactly what this world was like. I know that, Dawn and I have talked about as we've done this podcast, how astonishing the information we uncover about this period in the world is and how different it is from what you are, what is passed on to you through media and culture and the idea that this golden age, this, you know, pagan heaven, when really it was only that for one men, a certain group of men in particular, Landowning citizens. Landowning citizens. But, you know, a man may have had some chance no matter what. A woman really had none uh, for the Greeks, especially. And so, And in spite of that, you know, we we do have to say, because there are no absolutes in history, Mm -hmm. in spite of this, there were some women who we actually you know, have come down to us through history with individual names and deeds associated with them. Yes. Um, you know, one of the ones that we were, uh, that I was reading about a lot that they brought up was Aspasia, the wife of Perseus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she was, uh, she was an incredibly influential figure. Um, she was in on all of his political counsels and decisions. And of course was hated for that because you know, that was improper for a woman. But um, how did she capture, you know, such a position of power? Well, she was a prostitute. She was a prostitute and she captured his attention and she and she leveraged her sexual power into political power. And it's it's interesting that that is the that was the root. And by the way, you, you meant uh, Pericles, right? Pericles. Did I say Perseus? Yeah. Sorry, Pericles. Okay. Yes. 
But it's it is, it is. I mean, it's again that that root, and we see that root in movies, Pretty Woman, all that kind of stuff. We yeah. see that we see that still today. And I, this yes. is the, the point of the podcast that these things still influence the the what is conceivable for for some women as well. It still influences that. But I think for me, and that these are sorry. Yeah. Let me finish that okay, thought. Please. And that these are aspects of patriarchy. The reason they have these thoughts persist and these patterns of behavior persist and these narratives persist is because they are elements of patriarchy mm-hmm. and not because they are the the biologically natural state of things. Well it's not it's not evidence that they're true. It's evidence that they are indicative to the cultural system and political system of patriarchy. And that's, I think, the thing, of course, we're, we're, in fact, we're pointing out that these particular facts of that era are still impacting us and we're spread. So let's go, let's get to Aristotle. Let's talk okay. about him. Let's talk about bit. what a dick he was. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's just give, let me give a, just a quick background on who he was and where he's from. Now, now, Aristotle, one of the things I think is really fascinating about him for me is just the line he is part of in terms of the philosophical tradition. Right. So yeah. you have Socrates, who we think of as the father of modern Western philosophy, right? Um, we know of him uh, from histories, and we know that the, the idea that he was corrupting the youth was his sense of, with his philosophical propositions. His protege was Plato, again, mm-hmm. one of the great figures in Western tradition. And Plato has, you know, we have Plato's writings, and Plato has saved most of Socrates, writing to Socrates and write his beliefs down. Plato wrote them down for him and then uh, expressed his own. And then, yeah, added his own spin on them. Right. His own spin on them. And Plato's protege was Aristotle. So you have three, like uh, back to back to back, pretty heavy hitters that mm-hmm. show up in the world. And well, so what's Aristotle about? So he's called the master because. One, we'll talk about this in a bit, how he influenced the thinkers from the Middle Ages onward. But he gives us really a, a categorized version. He, he, he categorizes and he structures how the scientific method works in the West. The very thing we think of as that kind of rational Western male, let's just put it honestly the way it is, this the, the Western man who sees the world and puts it into structure and form and understands it and categorizes it, blah, blah, blah. That comes really from Aristotle's writings. He takes that to the next level in terms of categorization. He also takes logic and reasoning, Aristotelian logic, sort of deductive reasoning, all those sorts of things that comes from him. And I say, you know, bully. I mean, this is a, a really great thinker. But the problem is when you have someone that esteemed and that person espouses a mindset which is deeply, deeply destructive, in our opinion, in particular in specific to women, it resonates. And if people in, in following ages go, well, if this great man thought women were inferior and deformed and should be subjugated like slaves, maybe he's got a point. And it may sound crazy to think that that influenced, but it absolutely did. Uh, by the way, he is 
he mentors Alexander the Great. Yes. So you can imagine how that spreads that philosophy across half exactly. the earth. Half the know? earth. Half the, the, yeah, the known, the known world, world at the, the time. Known right. The known world at the time. Exactly. Exactly. So, so and I would also point out that the thing that people miss is that in developing this sort of logical way of looking at the world, at taking, you know, the, the known facts, quote unquote, or the known scientific beliefs, and then extrapolating from them a system of philosophy and action, a system of, of government, we need to remember that the facts and the science, I'm putting those in air quotes, upon which he based his theories are laughably incorrect. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was saying that essentially, you know, his understanding is that women's menses were what they contributed to. It was half of what they contributed to a child, right? So, or half of the, their half of what was contributed to a child. So with man, it was the semen. He understood that the semen, you know, was the man's contribution to a child, mm -hmm. but they had, they were completely off base in understanding what a woman's body actually did in creating a child, how she contributed half of the genes, how she, you know, her amniotic fluid and all that provided all of this stuff. They said, whatever comes out of a woman's body must be analogous to semen and therefore must be what she contributes to creating a child, which is, of course, completely wrong. Right. So, we know, right. Yeah. And now we know that. But all of the assumptions that, you know, that he had about women's nature and their capabilities were based on science, quote unquote, that is completely wrong. And we know if you start from an incorrect foundation and assumption and you try to reason from there, you are going to go uh, awry in many great ways. And so that it, that's, it is a great thing to point out that so many of those assumptions, which were in fact influenced without a question by older Greek thought about what women's worth was. You know, we've, we've used quotes before where so many of the Greeks in talking about birth uh, had said, you know, the ancient Greeks had said, boy, it would be great if there hadn't been any women and if we could have children without women. So you can already see in the Greek tradition, there's not a great desire to acknowledge or affirm or exalt women's contribution to childbirth, which to us sounds incredibly ridiculous and laughable, considering that is the great gift we see coming through in our from you know the biology of life itself. So it's interesting that they diminish the role of women in terms of that. But yeah, when he starts from this these foundations, you go off awry and astray, and you influence down through the ages, this mindset. So, you know, it's again, perpetuation talk, of this incorrect mindset. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So you've got Alexander, who's influenced by him, spreads the Greek culture and philosophy throughout the world. Um, and there are really interesting examples of how some really destructive aspects of Greek culture continue to today. That's for another podcast. 
Um, we then know that Rome is influenced by Greece. Rome looks to Greece as the great, you know, the great civilization from which to learn. So right. we then get that spread to the other half of the world. Because interesting, when Alexander conquers half of the known world, it's, it was an interesting choice. From Greece, he goes east rather than west. At the time he was uh, beginning his conquest, had he gone west, he would have encountered a rising Roman state. So it's a what if in history of what happens when the rising great Roman army, the right. battlers of Rome, meet the great conqueror from Greece. It could have been a very different world that we live in. But instead, Alexander went east. And so that the eastern part of the known world from Greece through Persia, Afghanistan, India is influenced then suddenly by Greek philosophy. But then the western part where you get into Italy and Iberia and Gaul and Britannia and Germania, that's influenced by Rome and that's influenced by Romans Romans imbibing and learning of the Greek tradition. So we so it spreads everywhere in the known Western world and some of the Eastern world through the, these particular conquerors and through these thoughts of people like Aristotle. And so what spreads is some things which are powerful, ways of constructing and seeing the world, and some things which we still are dealing with about how we look at women. I mean, it is interesting to think about how when Rome encounters the barbarian tribes like the Celts and Teutons, who have a much, much, much more powerful influence of powerful women in their tribal culture, mm -hmm. it's like a culture shock for them. Yes, yeah. Because Greek thought tells them that these things wouldn't be possible. And also it makes them think in the very Greco-Roman fashion, the stronger the women, the weaker the men kind of a thing. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. It, I mean, and one of the things that Aristotle talks about when he talks about the barbarians is that the reason that Greece and Greek men, um, it, that it was, it was proper and appropriate for them to enslave the barbarians was because the barbarians let their women run wild, that they treated their, their, that their men and women were considered equal. And therefore, clearly, they were a flawed civilization that needed to be taken over by the Greeks, who were so much more superior in thought, so that you know they could rule these barbarians who had no idea what they were doing. And, and isn't it fascinating that those "quote unquote" barbarians then become the, the the nation states that we know of in Western Europe, and they perpetuate, they take on the Greco-Roman tradition as the ideal mm -hmm. and shift a more egalitarian gender mindset into one that becomes deeply patriarchal. Yes, there's no question and scholars who are listening will say there was patriarchal eddies in these different cultures. There were also, I will argue and forcefully <laughs> argue, very strong matriarchal leanings in these cultures as well. And the debate, in my opinion, is still open. But at any rate, Eventually, they are wholly subsumed by this, let's call it Aristotelian notions of womanhood. Exactly. And, um, Sean, if you want to point out how that influenced 
the Catholic Church and the Christian Church and Christian Christian religious beliefs that, of course, spread across Europe and dictated social life in Europe um, in the coming centuries. Not only a Christian, but the three major Abrahamic religions, uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism were influenced by Aristotle. Because Judaism, for example, was influenced through Maimonides, one of the great philosophers of the Middle Ages, of of all time. Uh, And he is one of the single most influential Torah scholars in, in history. And so his analysis and interpretations of things were influenced by Aristotle. Mm. Um, Averroes and Avicenna, who were great Islamic scholars, astronomers, physicians, treatises on health and biology, deeply influenced by the man called the master in that realm. And then, of course, in the Christian tradition, we have St. Thomas Aquinas. And he has the Summa Theologica, which is the great work of the Middle Ages in terms of how to be the proper view of Christian life, of how to be a good Christian, of what the understandings of our our Christian behavior. And he directly echoes Aristotle's view on women, which of course influences the Christian view of the church. I mean, I always say as a practicing Christian, as a practicing Catholic, I do I argue forcefully that I do not believe the writings and teachings, the sayings of Christ are sexist or misogynist. What sexist and misogynist, in my opinion, is the way church fathers like Aquinas took those writings and interpreted them through the 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 filter of these other this in particular Aristotle, this Greco-Roman thought thought. Yes, yeah, yeah. And in the translations of their words, you know, yeah. I mean, the most popular, the most popular uh, Bible translation that we have for Christians is, um, is the, the King James version. James, right. Yeah. And that is, you know, that he was writing, he was translating and writing at a time um, and in a place that was deeply patriarchal. So of course, his translation is going to be colored by that. Of course it is. And that could be another podcast for us. It's King James and his his issue with witches mm. is really yeah. a fascinating aspect. And of course, that's certainly impacted our view, his notion in terms of womanhood. And, and we wonder, and we'd have to get someone to come on and talk with us about how much that influenced, like you say, those translations of uh, the language of the Bible. Right. So, right. So again, for the listener, just kind of pulling pulling it all together, it's like you can see now the basis of the world Aristotle lived in, the kinds of things he said, the fact that his translations, his works were preserved. I mean, many things were lost from the ancient world, but not Aristotle. Yeah. And those works became the chief influence for thinkers from the Middle Ages, from early, even earlier Middle Ages, from the Arabic scholars, the Islamic Golden Age uh, onward. And... What we'll start to look at as we look at more stuff in the ancient world, they influence the way we see the world today, particularly the way we think of how the world has always been and how history has always been and how, as you said earlier, what we think of as being native to women. Right, right. They, they provide a justification and a foundational belief that 
the that the Western world specifically um, has built upon for millennia. Yeah, and and let's make sure we we are included because it influenced the Middle Eastern world. Yeah, very deeply. So both um, Islam and Judaism had its influences and effect from that. So. Um, Maybe this is a good place to stop. Can I ask you your one more thing? Well, you- I want to, oh, uh, because, no, yeah, just because this has been so depressing, oh, okay. um, I want to just quick, really quick, sure. uh, end with a story um, about the woman who outwitted Aristotle. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. So Alexander the Great, pupil of Aristotle, he had... <laughs> that was just the applause for the, let's hear it. Um, Alexander the Great, the pupil of Aristotle, had a wife, and her name was Phyllis, which I think is great. I did had no idea the name Phyllis had such ancient roots, but it did. So she was apparently quite a hottie. Um, and Aristotle and uh, and Aristotle was in fact disturbed by the influence that she had over Alexander the Great, because he was so in love with her. He was so in love with her. And he thought, well, you know, this is going to be a problem because he's spending so much time and energy being in love with his wife that uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to slow down his mind. It's going to corrupt his mind. And it's going to keep him from, you know, building the empire. It's basically going to, you know, his potential is going to be diminished because he's in love with his wife. So his response to this, his, um, you know, his uh, uh, medicine for this ill was that uh, Alexander needed to stop being around his wife. He needed to separate himself from her. Uh, No shock. Phyllis was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So she came up with a plan. And that was that she was going to seduce Aristotle. She was going to get him under her power as firmly as she had Alexander the Great, quote unquote, under her power. And it worked. She just started flirting at him, you know, laughing at his stupid jokes, complimenting his robe of the day, you know, saying all those things about how smart he was. And oh, my God, you know, for an older man, you're still pretty hot. And it worked. Aristotle was smitten. So he pledged his undying love to her and said, you know, what do you need me to do in order to prove how much I love you and to to win you? Basically, uh, I want to sleep with you. What do I need to do? So um, Phyllis said, I will. I will totally rock your world. But first, you have to do something for me. It's just a little joke, just a little thing to prove how much you love me. Then, of course, she told her husband that he needed to be in a certain place at a certain time. And when he got there, what he saw was his esteemed, noble, and honorable teacher crawling around on all fours with a bit in his mouth and Phyllis on his back, on a saddle on his back, whip in hand, spanking his tutor as she rode around on his back. 
So uh, that's what happens to the so wise, so uh, logical, unemotional, pristine philosopher Aristotle when he tries to get between a husband and a wife who are in love. Waiting to see that made into a Hollywood movie at a theater near you. <laughs> and whether or not this story was true, um, it became what is called an exemplum, which was an example story, and it became immortalized in writings, paintings, household items. There are water vessels that are in the shape of a woman sitting on the back of a man with a bit in his mouth. So. So er, side by side with Aristotle's writings, I like to think that, uh, that it was also preserved um, what happens when you take your thinking a little bit too far, where it doesn't belong. I think the only thing to do right now is end the program. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> On that note. So I want to thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dawn Sam Alden. This is going to be a fun series. Absolutely. I am looking forward to unpacking a lot of this stuff over, oh, I, I am over too. this next series. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, and thank you for all of your research. I know you've been hitting the books very hard this week. So um, yeah. I appreciate all the research that you did. And I cannot, I cannot wait to dig into this. This has been my life's, I, I'm just going to sound a little dramatic, but it really has been like my life's issue for quite for for my life this has been my life's one of my life's issues is to point out i get really infuriated by the fact that i think this is so blatantly overlooked by scholars or dismissed or minimized it's like this is so influential in our world and they just act like you know what we can't say anything about these great men it'll just kind of ruin the whole gig so yeah i want to Want us to dig this one and show it, and I just hope people at least get to hear a different side of the story. Amen. Amen to that. So thank you all for listening. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. That was Don Sam Alden, and this is the 34th Circe Salon. Make matriarchy great again. We are looking at the ancient Greeks' view of women. We'll be back soon. Take care. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.